Well, good morning. Howdy. My name is Dave, and uh, Pastor Phil Vaughn will be back next Sunday. Uh, he talked to me on the phone uh, a week before last and said, hey, Dave, can you come and teach on the 23rd? I said, yes, I can. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, I'm going to start Luke 10 on the 16th, and then you come in and do the hard part on the 23rd. I'm like, got it. Phil, anything you need, I'm there for you, man. So we are going to continue in this series called Restart because it is the start of a new year, and there is so much in the old year we want to leave behind and forget about and cast aside. We want to walk the straight path that the Lord has set for us, unless he has a crooked path set for us. We'll walk that too. Uh, we want to, to do some new things this year. We want to be uh, new people this year, things we want to begin anew or begin afresh. And so that's what we're talking about in this series. I'm going to pick back, kind of back up into what uh, Phil Vaughn talked about last Sunday to kind of get us a running start into what we're going to do this morning. This is from Luke chapter 10. I'll be reading from the New International Version. If you have a Bible with you, this would be a great time to turn there. If you're watching with us online, you can uh, follow along in your own word. We're glad you're engaging with us, by the way. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, the Denver Broncos once drafted a rookie wide receiver in the first round. And in the first day of training camp at the Broncos practice facility, this hotshot wide receiver came out and had a terrible practice. He was so nervous, trying to remember the correct routes, the correct play calls, that he dropped not one, but two, and then a third very catchable pass that was thrown at him. And then he finally caught a fourth pass, but then a defensive back hit him and he fumbled the ball. And at the end of practice, he was so embarrassed and frustrated with himself and disappointed, he wondered if he was even going to make the team. And so he slunk into the locker room, took his shower, and he was coming out of the shower and getting dressed. Suddenly, four offensive linemen from the Denver Broncos grabbed him. Denver offensive linemen are some of the biggest and meanest football players they make. They grabbed him. And they said, listen here, rookie, we're not going to block all day so that you can drop the football, understand? And so they took a football and they put it in this kid's hands and they took training tape and they wrapped it around and around and around and around and around and around so that he was holding the football. And then they brought rope and they took and they tied him from his toes up to his shoulders and they sat him down in a chair and they put cloth in his mouth and put tape over his face so that he couldn't speak or yell for help. They said, now you think about this, rookie. We want you to learn a lesson. And all four of them left the locker room and left him all alone. Five minutes went by, maybe 10. And then the door to the locker room opened and who should come walking in but John Elway. Hall of Fame quarterback for the Denver Broncos, Super Bowl champion, former president of the Broncos. He comes in and he's looking at his phone. He's texting somebody. And this rookie sees John Elway, and he knows who he is. He's very excited. He says, 
John Elway stops for a second and he looks at this guy tied up in a chair, goes back to his phone, keeps texting and walks out the other side of the locker room. And the guy is so disheartened. Another 10 minutes goes by, maybe 15. And then who should come walking into the Denver Broncos locker room? But Peyton Manning, <laughs> Hall of Fame, Denver Broncos quarterback, Super Bowl champion, everyone's favorite pitch man. And the rookie says, vroom, 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 vroom. and Peyton Manning stops and he looks at him. He says, huh, must have been a pretty hard practice, huh, kid? And he walks out of the locker room the other way. <laughs> at this point, this rookie is so dejected. How long will he have to sit here? Who will come to his rescue? And then the door opens again. And who should come walking in? I'm asking you, who should come walking in? <laughs> Not bad. But here's who comes in. Colin Kaepernick. You remember Colin Kaepernick, former quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers and infamous national anthem kneeler. I don't know what he's doing in Denver. I don't know what he's doing in the Denver Broncos practice facility, but here he is. He walks in and he sees this guy tied up. He says, my goodness, man, what happened to you? And he comes over and he takes the gag out of the guy's mouth and he takes the ropes off and he helps him undo all the tape that's holding the football together. And he knows what's happened. He says, listen, man, we've all been there. I'm sorry they did this to you. It's hazing. They weren't trying to hurt you. They're just trying to make a point. Listen, they wouldn't have bothered with this if they didn't think you had potential. If they thought you were going to be cut next week, uh, they wouldn't have done that. They just want you to impress upon you the importance of catching and holding on to that football. And as a former quarterback, I can tell you, yeah, that's pretty important. Listen, are you married? You got a girlfriend? And the guy says, yeah. I said, well, here, I'll tell you what. Here's, uh, here's $200. Uh, take your girl out to a nice dinner. In fact, here's another 100 Get a nice bottle of wine. On me. Don't worry about it. Just relax. Forget it. Put it all behind you. In fact, here's, here's my phone number. You text me if you, you get in any trouble or you need anything. And you come back tomorrow morning and you show them that you're here to work and mean business. You'll win their respect. Hang in there, rookie. You got a bright future. He slaps him on the back. He walks out the door. Is that a good story? Is that the way you wanted that story to go, Denver Broncos fans? <laughs> and if maybe you're a fan of Colin Kaepernick, and if so, then you should substitute a different character into that third slot. Somebody you're not a fan of. Pick a Trump, pick a Biden, pick a Fauci. Someone who sticks in your craw a little bit, someone who ruffles your feathers a little bit, and you'll understand the point that Jesus wants us to understand. The story of the Good Samaritan is probably Jesus' best-known parable. We don't hear it the way his first hearers did because of the cultural differences, context that would have made it so shocking and even distasteful to them. Here's the Actual story Jesus told, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, 
and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Really important for us to understand the context behind this story and why Jesus is telling it. He tells this story in response to the question, who is my neighbor? But what Jesus wants, this expert in the law and his disciples, his first followers, and all of us by extension to understand is this. In God's economy, who is my neighbor is the wrong question. In God's economy, that is God's kingdom, who is my neighbor is the wrong question. This expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This guy is learned. He knows his Old Testament scriptures and he knows that the Old Testament speaks of an eternal inheritance that God's people can possess. And he asked Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit this eternal life? And Jesus responds, as a good Jewish rabbi would, with a question of his own. He turns to the law of Moses and asks the Lord, what do you see in it? What do you see it saying? And this guy replies wonderfully well with what's called the greatest commandment, the commandment in which all the other commands of the Old Testament scriptures are summarized. First is, from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, good answer. He says, if you do this, you will live. And some people kind of get sidetracked by that. They think, well, Jesus must be giving some kind of works-based, dispensationally limited commendation, but he's not. He's just asserting the fundamental call of God. What does God want? But for us to love him with our whole lives and to love others, reflecting the love that we have from God. In the context of Luke 10, this response means that those who love God will hear Jesus, respond to Jesus, and receive life in Jesus. He's going to make clear later that such people receive not only God's forgiveness, but God's own spirit, the power, the person of the Holy Spirit, so that we can restart to a new life in him. Love for God comes to a person responding with faith in God means that the call of God will be heard. So Jesus rightly says, hey, do this and you'll live. Love God, love your neighbor. And that's what Pastor Phil taught on last week. But then Luke goes on. He tells us that this lawyer wanted to justify himself. Interesting tidbit. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And his question is really an attempt to create a distinction, arguing that this circle of people, I'm going to draw a circle around, these are the people that are my neighbors? Or do we need to make the circle a little bigger? Can we make it a little smaller? Can we just make it me? <laughs> and what he's doing is he's trying to say, okay, some people are my neighbor and some people aren't. Some people are non-neighbors. 
And I only need to love the people that I like, or the people who are like me, or the people that we have a lot of stuff in common with. And Jesus is responding to that idea, the implication that some people are non-neighbors. And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He picks a Samaritan as the highlight of the story because that was the most non-neighbor type of person that a Jew in first century Palestine could have thought of. In God's economy, who is my neighbor is the wrong question. And we see from this story that Jesus tells, in God's economy, being religious doesn't exempt me from being a neighbor. Being religious doesn't exempt me from being a neighbor. Interesting little cultural detail, the setting of Jesus' story is the treacherous road from Jerusalem to Jericho as the site of what's going to happen. See, it's a 17-mile journey, well known in that day for its danger. The cultural equivalent today, if Jesus would tell this story, he would say a man was walking uh, down the middle of the inner city after midnight. Because on that road, thieves would take advantage of the caves that lined the road as it kind of wound through the desert, and they would jump travelers, unwary travelers, as they passed by. And so the man in the story is stripped of his clothing, he's beaten, he's robbed, left for dead, cast aside at the side of the road. And then Jesus gives two opportunities for help, two potential heroes who don't pick up that baton. Both the priest and the Levite are pious, they're religious. They're looked up to in that culture, but they pass by on the other side of the road to avoid helping this man in desperate need. In each case, they're righteous men come down the path and the listeners assumed, okay, this is who's going to rescue, come save the day. But in each case, there's disappointment. Now, you know, Jesus, if all he wanted to make the point of was do we need to have compassion to those who are in need? Why have the priest and the Levite show up at all? Why are they a part of the story? What does that accomplish? But he does include them and he creates considerable suspense as first one and then the second one pass by and don't do anything. In the standards of that day, they should have been the very ones to offer help, the first ones to offer help, the others to lead, the ones who led others to helping. And they didn't. Paradoxical as it may sound, and I know this from experience as a pastor. Religion often gets in the way of showing compassion. God's compassion for people in the world. Shouldn't work like that, but it often does. Religion gets in the way of compassion. The priest, the Levite, aren't just two passerby. They aren't just two religious guys. They're representative of the religious leadership, the temple authorities in Israel. Why do they pass by? Jesus doesn't say. Some have suggested, well, maybe they're in a hurry to get to the temple to perform their religious ceremonies, and so they give no thought to this man. And Kind of the way Jesus says it, though, is that they're going down the same way away from Jerusalem to Jericho, where the guy was traveling. So they would have been coming home from the temple, not going to it. Some have suggested that, well, maybe they thought this man was dead, and if they touched a a corpse, it would defile them ceremonially, and so they would be ceremonially unclean, and then they couldn't function as priest and Levite for a while, and that would create problems for them. I guess that's possible, but Jesus doesn't say that. So it's probably best not to speculate. The point is, they see the man, and they go on their way. How much of church work, in fact, 
gets in the way of the work of the church in the world. It's so easy for that to happen. We can get so busy with church activities, uh, all of which are good things, but we, if we never rub shoulders with needy people, if we never come in contact with unchurched people, I think we've missed the point of our mission. We've missed the opportunity of what God wants to do through us in our world. When their wedding venue fell through at the last minute, Krista and Jeremy Barassa decided to hold their wedding ceremony at the groom's fire station in St. Paul Park, Minnesota, knowing full well it was possible that a fire alarm could completely disrupt things in the middle of the wedding. Well, they made it through the wedding ceremony without a hitch, but then they were taking photos before the reception. An urgent call came in for help to knock out a fire that was engulfing a house in a nearby town. Krista looked at her new husband and told him to go ahead and fight the fire. She said to a TV station later, you know, I've got the rest of my life with him. They needed him in that moment. Three hours later, Jeremy returned to the reception. The bride and groom had their first dance as a married couple. And he said, that just kind of put the icing on the cake. I know she's the one for the rest of my life. I love that story because this couple serves as such a great reminder of the purpose of local church. We, should, we can get busy with church services. We can get busy with programs and activities and celebrations and retreats and camps and all these things are fine as long as we're willing to be interrupted by what the Holy Spirit has for us to do in the world. I know this from experience that sometimes... I'm going about my busy day or doing things that I want to do and the Lord gives me a chance to be obedient. He throws somebody in my path and I'll think, I don't have time to help this person. I'm busy being a pastor. I have a sermon to write. But then if I'm listening to the Holy Spirit, I'll think in my heart, okay, wait a second. Maybe this is the pastoring the Lord has me to do today. Maybe this is God's agenda for me that wasn't my agenda for the day. After the two religious leaders pass by, who comes along? A Samaritan. And we see that in God's economy, social and ethnic barriers don't exempt me from being a neighbor either. Being religious doesn't exempt me from being a neighbor, and neither do social or ethnic barriers. Samaritans. In Jesus' day, in Israel, were just despised class of people. Samaritans were the descendants of unlawful intermarriages, many of them centuries earlier, between Jews and Gentiles in Israel. Samaritans were racially mixed and theologically suspect. See, they, they did not accept all of the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, which means they didn't know about uh, King David, didn't know about King Solomon, didn't know about the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, once, many years before, they built their own temple to worship God up in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And how did the Jews like that? Not well. In fact, they ran up there and they tore that thing down. Bad blood. In fact, just the previous chapter in Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus goes to Samaria and Samaritans do not welcome him. Why? Because he's a Jew. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And James and John come up alongside Jesus and they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume these people? 
please? Can we do that? Jesus says, no, pinheads. You don't read it in the Greek, it's in the Greek pinheads, he calls them. No, he doesn't call them that. But Jesus rebukes them and says, no, we're not going to do that. The point is, a lot of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breed heretics. But this Samaritan in Jesus' story is the guy who shows up and saves the day. He has pity on this wounded Jewish traveler. And Jesus details a series of verbs, how active he is in ministering to his needy neighbor. Jesus says he goes to him, he bandages him, he pours oil and wine on his wounds, which is what they did for medicine back then. He puts him on his donkey, which means the Samaritan now is on foot. He carries him to an inn and he takes care of him, even to the point of leaving enough money behind to make sure the man has two weeks lodging to recover. In addition, he tells the innkeeper, you keep a running tab now, when I come back, I'll pay for any cost overruns. And then Jesus asks this question. Okay, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? It's actually a pretty easy question. But this scribe, this expert in law, interestingly, doesn't say Samaritan. I think he can't even bring himself to say that word. He says, one who had mercy on him. Jesus says, good, go and do likewise. You know, there are people all around us, our world, our neighborhood, in your orbit, who are in need of mercy. Could be physically, could be materially, could be emotionally, could be spiritually. People need mercy. And the question this text raises for us is do we share the Samaritan's compassion for those people in our world, or have we put up emotional force fields? Have our hearts become calloused because, oh, the need's so great, I could never do anything, so I'm not going to do anything at all. I think it's important that Jesus is so honest about how much compassion can cost us, how expensive compassion can be. You know, people talk idealistically about it or sentimentally about it, but if you get close to someone who's hurting, someone who's in need, almost always costs us something. Emotionally, if nothing else, I mean, working with other people's wounds can get really messy. Investing in people in pain is going to take us off our normal schedule, change our game plan. But crossing over to help will inconvenience us. It'll cost us emotionally. It'll cost us monetarily. cost us time. It subject us to entanglements that go on for a long time. In other words, crossing over to help, to show compassion, means we deny ourselves that we've worked so hard to maintain and protect. To do what the Good Samaritan does means we have to die to ourselves a little bit more as we restart. It means to walk in the way of Jesus, who, you think about it, Jesus crossed over, existing pre-eternally in his Father, heavenly realms, crossed over to become a little baby, born into our world, in poverty, weak, vulnerable, What did it cost Jesus to do that? Much less to go to the cross. He gave his very life to save and to heal. Even four-star generals can use some roadside help now and then. 
In uh, 2019, former Secretary of State Colin Powell got some help from a military veteran after Powell blew out a tire on his way to a doctor's appointment. At the time, he was 81 years old, and Colin Powell was on his way to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Maryland for an appointment when he got a flat tire on I-495, which is Washington, D.C.'s Beltway. Former Army General, former Secretary of State, was having trouble changing the tire. He said it was cold outside and the lug bolts were really tight. And a man with a prosthetic leg pulled over, got out of his car to help. Powell recounted the moment later that day in a grateful Facebook post. He said, as this man got out of his car, I could see he had an artificial leg. He said, he recognized me, he wanted to help me, and we chatted, and I learned that he lost his leg in Afghanistan when he worked over there as a civilian employee. He grabbed the lug wrench, he helped me, we finished the job, I put the tools away, and then we both hurriedly headed off to our appointments at Walter Reed. The man's name is Anthony Maggart. He retired from the military after 23 years in which he served in the Marines, Air Force, and Army. Maggart had already pulled over to the side of the road before he realized that the person he was stopping to help was Colin Powell. He says, you know, he's got an iconic face. I said to myself, hey, that's Colin Powell. Powell was kind of shocked. He said, well, why are you helping me? And I told him, well, you can wait around for a two-legged guy. <laughs> right now, I'm what you got. Powell saw Anthony Maggart's small act of kindness as one that our whole country can learn from. Thanks, Anthony, he posted, you touch my soul and reminded me about what this country is all about and why it's so great. Let's stop screaming at each other. Let's just take care of each other. You made my day. Maggart also wrote about the encounter, posted some photos, said, in the end, this lets you know we're all just people. Sometimes you need help. I pulled over because I thought somebody needed help. I'd have done that for anybody. You know, we haven't yet hit on the most important point. You know, a lot of stories in Jesus' day actually did involve two clerics or two authority figures, two clergymen, and then a third character who was an ordinary Jewish person. Sort of like a joke, we have two examples of foils set up the punchline. There was an entire body of Jewish lore that had this anti-institutional flavor to it. And Jesus' audience, I think, thought this is what he was setting them up for, this kind of tale. You know, the priest came by, he should have offered to help, but he didn't. A Levite came by, he should have offered to help, but he didn't. But then an ordinary Jewish farmer came by. Or an ordinary Jewish day laborer came by, and he was the one who helped. But no. Jesus gives it a big twist. A Samaritan. Shockwaves. A Samaritan is the hero of this story. And so we lose the impact of the story altogether if we forget. And in their mind, good Samaritan was a contradiction in terms. Two, two terms didn't belong together in their thinking. And that's the most dramatic point of this parable. The lesson that the man in the ditch would have learned based on who rescued him is this. In God's economy, even my enemy is my neighbor. In God's economy, in God's kingdom, even my enemy is my neighbor. Making the Samaritan the hero, I think Jesus is saying, you know, your enemy may be the most important neighbor you have. Especially if you want to restart this year as people who are significantly different from those who don't know the Lord, those who are not yet redeemed. So I have to ask you an uncomfortable question. I just want you to be honest in your mind about it. Two questions, actually. One, 
Who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? Maybe someone in your neighborhood. Maybe someone at your work or school. Oh no, it may even be somebody in your family. Who is your enemy? Second question. What would Christ have you do for them? What would Jesus have you do for them? Elmer Bendiger wrote a book called The Fall of Fortresses, and he describes this true story of a World War II bombing run over the German city of Cassel. He said our B-17, the Tondaleo, was barraged by flak from Nazi anti-aircraft guns. That wasn't unusual, but on this particular occasion, our fuel tanks were hit. Later, I reflected on the miracle of a 20-millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion. Our pilot, Ben Fox, told me it wasn't really quite that simple. See, the morning following the raid, Fox had gone down to ask our crew chief for that shell as a souvenir of his unbelievable luck. The crew chief informed him, well, it wasn't just one shell. Eleven shells had been found in the fuel tanks. Eleven unexploded shells where one would have been enough to blast them out of the sky. It was as if the sea had been parted for us. Elmer writes. He says, wait till you hear the rest of the story. Ben Fox was told that shells had been sent to the armors to be diffused. He went to the armors. The armors told him that intelligence had picked them up. They couldn't tell him why at the time. Ben Fox eventually sought out the answer. Apparently, when the armors opened each one of those shells, they found no explosive charge. They were as clean as a whistle and just as harmless. Were they empty? Well, not all of them. One of those shells that they took out of that fuel tank contained a carefully rolled up piece of paper. They unrolled the paper and saw it was written in Czech, tiny handwritten scrawl. They looked around, who's someone who can read Czech? They scoured the base. They finally found a guy who came in and translated what was written in Czech on that tiny piece of paper, translated it, said, this is all we can do for you now. Yes, you're our enemy. This is all we can do for you now. This expert in the law wants to know if he can be a neighbor to just a select elite few, just to his friends, the people he likes. Jesus uses Samaritan to tell him, no, why don't you be the neighbor? Let the neighbor be you. Rather than worrying if someone else is my neighbor, Jesus' call is to be a neighbor to those in need, even if it's an enemy. He makes the call no longer one of assessing other people, judging other people, figuring other people out. It's a call of being a certain kind of person. He ups the requirement the night before his crucifixion when he gathers his disciples and he says, okay, a new command I give you. Love each other as I have loved you. The standards no longer love our neighbor as ourselves. Standard is love as Jesus loves. So who is my neighbor is a worldly question. Who needs me to be a neighbor? That's a kingdom question. Who needs me to be a neighbor? How can I do that? Well, it takes eyes and ears, which the priest and Levite had, 
It also takes a heart, which only the Samaritan had. Neighbors see and feel and serve. Why? Because they love Jesus. We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. Every night in London, England, a group of Christians don blue jackets, blue baseball caps, and they roam the streets. They call themselves the street pastors. And they walk the streets in the middle of the night. They help to diffuse arguments. They listen to people's problems. They minister to the homeless. They help uh, drunk people get to the right taxi or bus. They hand out bottled water. The influence of these dedicated lay leaders has been remarkable. In fact, London's city website says almost every London borough now has a street pastor's team. And the most immediate result in every case has been the drop in crime in areas where these teams have been working. One policeman said his district would be much, much harder to police without the street pastors. Every street pastor begins his or her evening with prayer and meditation on a Bible verse. They all acknowledge they have many people who are praying for them as they do what they do. Communities respect their work, but the comment they most often hear is, you're mad. Maybe they are, but their good cheer is infectious. I've met one of these people, Claire Burns is her name, and she's a street pastor in Shrewsbury in Shropshire, and she told me some about it. She said almost everything they do is really kind of obvious and mundane. They check in at corner shops, they say hello, they ask how business is, they talk about the weather. When they pass by someone sleeping in a doorway, they check on him, see what he needs, offer him an extra blanket. Afterwards, they can contact social services and let them know about him. A drunk person comes out of the pub, the couple of this team will wander over to make sure that they know where they are and how to get home. They may call them a taxi. Claire says, pretty low-level stuff, really. But it's exactly the low-level kinds of kindness that can so often be missing from our cities, especially after dark. Who needs me to be a neighbor? Who needs you to be a neighbor? You know, I think a lot of times, you know, we see what needs to be done in the world and we think, oh, we can barely make a dent. If I don't know where to begin, I won't even start because I just feel overwhelmed. But I think a better approach is just to pitch in where I see a need and know that I can be of help. Yeah, I can't put out every fire, can't correct every societal ill, but being a neighbor doesn't require meeting every need. It just means acting one piece of the puzzle that God is putting together for his kingdom. And so many of you are already involved in ministries like this. Hope's Promise is a local nonprofit focused on adoption and crisis pregnancy. Wellspring is a nonprofit that meets in this building throughout the week focusing on adults with disabilities. After the first hour, I got to talk to folks who work the Castle Oaks Food Bank that provides groceries and food for 40, 50 families every Saturday right here. Neighborliness comes in all shapes and sizes. It's just a question of who are we going to be? Who do I want to be? Who needs me to be their neighbor? Who needs you to be their neighbor? Who needs you to meet them in the street? Who needs you to help them when they're broken down and need to get moving again? Who needs you to take the gunpowder out of an explosive situation? Who needs you to drop what you're doing and run to their rescue? Put out a fire 
that they can't handle. You know, to be honest, we don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. No law, human law on the books, requires us to cross over to the person in the ditch. Nothing says we have to do that. But if we do, if we do, we'll be walking in the way of Jesus. When you do, you'll walk in the way of Jesus. And you'll be off to a new start. Can I pray for us? Gracious, wonderful, amazing Lord Jesus, your name is wonderful, your name is powerful. I pray for a new work in my heart, in our hearts. So easy, Lord, to get preoccupied with the minutia of our own lives, the demands of our own lives, the pressures of our own lives that we don't see past our noses to people who need us to be neighbors. Lord, give us wisdom. Maybe more than that, give us compassion. Your love for the brokenhearted, the needy, the people we would consider our enemy. Lord, you've died for them too. Please receive our worship in the spirit we intend. Lord, please infuse us again with your Holy Spirit that we would leave here transformed people different from the way we came in. I pray this for my sake, for our sakes, the sake of Castle Oaks Covenant Church, in your name. Amen.